I'd like to turn your attention to uh, the passage from Isaiah chapter 11. That's page 9 in your bulletin. I'm going to be preaching from that passage this morning. When devastation happens, after devastation, after destruction, where do you find hope? Hope often comes in a word of promise. So, God forbid this happened, but if your house was destroyed in a fire, hope would come when the insurance company promises you money to help you rebuild. If you lose your job, hope might arise when somebody tells you, a friend tells you that they promise that they'll get you an interview at the company they work for. You're diagnosed with a disease. Hope arises when you hear the, the, the word of promise of, about a new cure. Hope often comes in a word of promise. And for us, our hope as God's people is bound to the promises that God has made to us. Our hopes for the future hinge on the promises of God. In this reading from Isaiah 11, God is giving his people hope for the future in the promise of a future king, the Messiah. Now, this this prophecy, this promise that God made to the people of Israel through Isaiah comes after Isaiah has already prophesied destruction for the people of Israel. Destruction because of their unfaithfulness to God, destruction As the judgment of God on Israel. And that prophecy came true. It was fulfilled in 587 B.C. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And people were led into exile. But Isaiah says. After prophesying that. Devastation. Destruction. Judgment. There's hope. Here's a promise. That you can hang on to. It's a promise of the coming king. This promise of hope is bound to a person. Our promises from God are bound up with this person, the Messiah. And during Advent, we celebrate that as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the promised king and that he is the one who ultimately fulfills these promises. I want to look at the ways in which Jesus fulfills these promises today and What this means for us. Think about the qualifications here of the king. He has to come from a certain lineage. He has to come from the line of David. And look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The image here is, is of this, this line, Jesse, of course, the father of David. And the imagery here is this line of Davidic kings. These kings from the line of David have been sort of cut down. Think of a forest that's been clear cut. And yet you look in the forest and there's this stump. And out of the stump emerges this little shoot, this ray of hope, this sign of life. And Isaiah is prophesying after the devastation. God is going to raise up a king from this line of David. And um, this would fulfill a promise that God made to King David. 
David, of course, the, the greatest king of Israel, the one who united the tribes together, the one who had a heart after God, even though he was, as we know, a deeply flawed character. He had a heart for God. And God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. This is the promise of, uh, of heirs from the line of David who would reign forever. It's the Davidic covenant that God made. And Jesus came from the line of David. The New Testament is clear about that, is emphasizing that as we read the stories of Jesus' birth this time of year and the genealogies, you see that connection to David. Jesus comes from this line. He fulfills this prophecy. He fits the qualification of the coming king. Here's another qualification of of the promised king. Look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the promise that this king would be anointed by the spirit of God. And all the kings of Israel were anointed. Oil was poured upon them. And that was to be an outward sign. The oil was an outward sign or a symbol of God's spirit coming upon the king. And here um, Isaiah prophesies about this great king who will come. And he'll have everything by virtue of the anointing of the spirit that he needs to lead the people. Wisdom and understanding, counsel, might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we know what happened when Jesus was baptized. The Spirit descended upon him like a dove. The Spirit rested upon him. And then when Jesus began his ministry, his messianic ministry, he goes to his hometown and he preaches his first sermon and he quotes from Isaiah 61. And what does he say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty for the for the captives, to open blind eyes and to set people free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus claims this identity as the anointed king and the spirit of God is upon him, resting upon him. And he has the Holy Spirit without measure, the fullness of the spirit flowing through Jesus as he ministers. And the one qualification that perhaps is most important of all in this section in verses two and three is that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will have reverence and honor for God. He will take God seriously. He will obey God. And we see that Jesus did that even to the point of going to the cross, submitting his will to the will of the father. So many of the kings did not have the fear of the Lord. You read First and Second Kings and Chronicles and what these kings did at this time. Isaiah's, many scholars think that at this time Isaiah's prophesying when King Isaiah was the king. Now, King Isaiah was a very wicked king. Um, he did not walk in the fear of the Lord. King Isaiah, the book of Kings tells us, he adopted the religious practices of his neighbors. He practiced Canaanite religion, pagan religion. 
even fell so low in his lack of the fear of God that he practiced child sacrifice, even the sacrifice of his own son, it says. This is the kind of leadership that was happening in Israel at the time. Um, the, the leaders of Israel, the kings of Israel, were to be the perfect Israelite. They were to be an example to the rest of the nation of what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. But they all failed. But Jesus did not fail. Jesus walked in the fear of the Lord. He walked in obedience to God. He fulfills this role. He delighted to obey his father. And then consider the character of the king. There's one word here that repeats a couple of times, and it's the word righteousness. If there's one character quality that marks this king, if, if there's one statement that summarizes what he will do in his administration, if this is the campaign motto, this is the word right here, it's righteousness. He's going to be a righteous king, verse 4. With righteousness, he'll judge the poor. He's not going to judge based on what he sees or what people say, but he'll have discernment to judge rightly. He'll judge the poor in righteousness and decide with equity for the, the meek of the earth. He's not going to show favors. You see what happens when people get into power and when there's corruption is that those in power oftentimes will show favorites to the powerful and and they don't really care about the weak because the weak can't really help them out. The poor can't help them out. But it's the rich, it's the connected, it's the powerful that can help them out and help them maintain power. It's I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine. And so that's how it often works, especially in corrupt government. But not this king. This king is going to judge fairly, righteously. So the word here, righteous, has a relational connotation. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, the, the word righteous means that you treat people right and, and you walk in rightness before the Lord, in the fear of the Lord. And, and that's the kind of king this king will be. And he'll have a heart, especially for the poor and the needy. He's not going to show favorites. He's not going to judge by human standards. He's going to judge with the judgment of God. And he's going to see people how God sees them, no matter if they're high or low. And we see that in Jesus' ministry, that he ministered to the poor and the marginalized, and he, he healed beggars, and he touched lepers, people with leprosy that everybody wanted to stay away from. Jesus touched them, and he ate with tax collectors and sinners, and prostitutes were around his table, and it was a great scandal, but he did not look at people the way other people look at them. With the eyes of God, he saw people, and he preached the same message. The rich and poor. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Part of the righteousness of the king is, is that he will come in judgment. Not just that he won't show favorites, but he will come in judgment. And then there's this word here in verse 4, this line that he will, and it's a sobering line when you read it, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked out of his word, out of his declaration. There's going to come a judgment. And if people don't respond, then death will follow. And when we hear uh, a verse like that, when we when we read 
something that's so sobering and, and, and threatening, we might think, well, that surely doesn't apply to us because he says he will kill the wicked and we're not that. We're, we're not the wicked. But the Bible doesn't allow us to get away with that. Isaiah, when he prophesies judgment, he prophesies judgment to all nations, to all people, even to the people of Israel. And he prophesies this and he offers this word of judgment so that people would return in repentance and faith to God. Isaiah prophesies that God's judgment is going to fall on Israel because they're part of the wicked. They're doing wicked things. And that's an important lesson, I think, for us to think about, that we tend to divide the world into us versus them, the righteous versus the unrighteous, the just Versus the unjust. But the Bible often puts all of us together. We're all lumped together. There is the holy God of Israel. The righteous one. Who is holy, holy, holy. Who dwells in unapproachable light. And, and his glory is radiant. And it's something we can't even imagine. And then there's us. We're all over here. There's the rest of us. That's the vision that Isaiah was given of God. The God of Israel dwells in blazing glory and holiness. And all of us have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, there's degrees of wickedness and unrighteousness, no doubt about it. But in light of who God is, no one is righteous. No, not one. And that's why John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, and you might say John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He had this vision and this promise of the coming of Messiah in his heart and in his mind. And he understands that this is happening in Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, in order to prepare for the coming of this holy king, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. So when we read a line about God judging the wicked. Beware of saying, oh, this is for this judgment is about those out there. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was um, a prisoner in Russia, who wrote about the gulags. Um, he saw the suffering of the gulags and saw the, the suffering under a government who had decided that they were going to divide people up, those who were for the revolution and those who were against. And, and they were the ones who would determine. They were the ones who would make this judgment on who was in and who was out. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote these famous lines. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and then we could destroy them. But the dividing line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who wants to destroy their own heart? So we need a heart transformation. We need a new heart. We need a holy God to forgive us. And that happens. That happens through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. A new heart. It happens through a relationship with this king. And then Isaiah, as he moves forward in this vision, writes beautiful words from from six through through ten, just a, a picture, a, a poem of of what uh, creation restored. Um, 
creation renewed, paradise regained, wholeness, shalom, peace. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. You get the imagery here. It's, these animals are, are naturally against one another. This is natural enmity built into creation. But he said the time is coming when the Messiah reigns where there will be peace and harmony and wholeness in the created world. Even in this one kind of sends shivers up my Fine, when I think about it with my kids, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand into a snake's nest. But they won't be harmed or destroyed, he says, my holy mountain. Creation won't represent a threat. There'll be peace, there'll be order, there'll be harmony. Earlier this year, I was here in the office studying for a sermon and I get a distress call from Josie. And she says, you've got to come home right now. And when they say that, I I perk up when she says, right now, there is no negotiation here. There's a snake in the garage. And I saw it and now it's disappeared. So I had to go home into the garage and start taking away boxes and bins and uh, all sorts of equipment. Sam was there, little Sam, little toddler Sam. He saw this snake. His eyes were this big as he told me about this snake. Josie thought it was a copperhead snake because she had looked it up on Google. So it, it frightened him and we were there trying to find this snake and we never found it. But Sam still talks about it sometimes. Dad, you remember that copper snake he called it? The copper snake was in our garage. It's natural enmity. When we see a snake, when a child sees a snake, there's this reaction. But... Isaiah says the time is coming where creation is going to be redeemed and nature will, be not, will not be red in tooth and claw. And, and the Apostle John carries his vision forward at the end of the Bible in Revelation. We talked about the new heaven and the new earth and there won't be any suffering anymore. No tears of suffering. It will all be wiped away. And the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth is where God is going to dwell with his people. And there's going to be a river of life that flows there. And there's going to be the tree of life that feeds the nation. It's a picture of wholeness and abundance and peace and flourishing. And the Bible says, well, this is where history is headed. This is where it's going. The creator is going to redeem creation. And then when the, the, the king comes, he's going to set up his kingdom and people are going to stream from all over the nations. It ends in verse 10. Look at that. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all people or a sign for all people or a banner for all people. It's this idea of the of the Messiah sort of raising this banner that is going to attract people from every nation and his resting place shall be glorious. And some people see that as a prophecy about the. The resurrection and the empty tomb. But the Apostle Paul, when he's writing Romans and he's writing about how God is now calling Gentiles into the kingdom. And how the promise that God made to Israel was to bless all nations of the world. When Paul is writing this in Romans and he gets to the ends of of Romans and he's thinking about 
Jews and, and Gentiles together in the kingdom of God. And he thinks about his own ministry to the Gentiles and how he's seen Gentiles coming in and the nations coming to Christ. He says, this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 11. He quotes this very verse and he says, see, God keeps his promises. God keeps the promises that he's made to our fathers. And Paul recognized it was unfolding in his day. And so these promises of God through time are being fulfilled and they're going to reach a day of ultimate fulfillment. And the question for us today is, do we believe in the promises of God and is our hope bound up in these promises that he's made to us through this king? There's a difference between a promise and a prediction in terms of how it relates to us personally. Christopher Wright, a New Old Testament scholar, writes about this in one of his books, talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he says there's a, diction, a difference between a prediction and a promise. You know, you can predict. I predict the weather's going to be cold next week. I predict the Ravens are going to win the Super Bowl. That's fine to have those kind of predictions out there. But that doesn't really impact me personally. But a promise is different. When somebody gives you a promise or when you, you make a promise, there's a personal connection there. There's a bond there. When Josie and I promised one another in marriage all the things that we promised, it bound us together in a, in a special way. And that bond of the promise has helped us secure through some difficult times. And it gives us security for the future. And God has made promises to you through his son, Jesus Christ. And he has bound himself to you in these promises. And that sustains us as we go forward in the future. You know, we look at our world with all of its suffering and evil. Genocide. Bloodshed of the innocent. Corruption in government. Hatred that boils over into violence. We see it all the time. And we may see this and think about it, reflect on it, and think, you know what? It just seems it's all pointless. It's all meaningless. There's no ultimate goal or direction. And we see suffering and experience it. Do we believe the promise that there's redemption at the end of the story? Do we believe that the glory that is to come fars outweigh any suffering that we might experience? Now, can we believe the risen king who comes to us with nail scarred hands and promises redemption? From suffering. Some of us are sensitive to the disharmony of nature because often the created world, as wonderful as it is, as awe inspiring as it is, the created world often seems out of joint and the lion is definitely not lying down with the lamb. And we hear about destruction and disease and Ebola and swine flu and measles making a comeback in some parts of the world and earthquakes and fires and all the rest. And we feel some of us in our own bodies the creeping destruction of decay and disharmony. We may battle impulses and addictions in our flesh, in our body that lead us to do things that we don't want to do. And there's disharmony. 
Can we trust the promise of this king who healed the sick and raised the dead and whose tomb is empty and his resurrection on the third day is a promise of a new world to come? Can those of you who are here today who are guilt ridden and bearing shame trust the promise of a crucified king that even though he will come to judge the living and the dead. He bore your penalty for your sin. And that his life as the perfect Israelite, the perfect covenant keeper, the perfect God fearer, his life was lived in your place. And as you are united to him by faith, his righteousness is yours. And that his sacrifice met the just demand of this holy God. Will you trust the promise of this king's divine forgiveness and love? Friends, the promised king has come. He's coming again. Our hope is in him. Amen.